One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host Heather Tesco and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and becoming more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 105 and it is an interview with Alison Weir about Jane Seymour. Alison Weir has a new book out, The Haunted Queen, which is a historical fiction look at Jane Seymour. So she's going to tell us a lot about Jane Seymour and theories about her death. So stay tuned for that. And then just quickly, a reminder that if you want to support this podcast, there are three main ways you can do it. First, you can leave a rating or review on iTunes. That's free and it makes such a huge difference in helping other people to discover the show. Second, You can become a patron on Patreon for as little as a dollar a show. Thank you to all my current patrons. I'll give you a full shout out in the next episode. And third, you can buy all of your Tudor themed gifts and swag at the Tudor Fair shop, which is tudorfair.com. And there's all kinds of cool beach stuff in there right now. So there's really cool bathing suits and beach towels and beach shawls and flip-flops and all kinds of stuff in really cool patterns like one with an Anne Boleyn portrait with the bee necklace kind of woven throughout. So there's super cool stuff there right now that you should totally check out for summer. tutorfair.com for that. So those are the three main ways you can support the podcast and all of them are deeply appreciated. So now I'm going to introduce you to Alison Weir as if she needed in an introduction, right? Alison Weir is the New York Times best-selling author of numerous historical biographies, including The Lost Tudor Princess, Elizabeth of York, Mary Boleyn, The Lady in the Tower, Mistress of the Monarchy, Henry VIII, Eleanor of Aquitaine, The Life of Elizabeth I, and The Six Wives of Henry VIII, which was the first Tudor book I ever read on a winter snowstorm day in January of 1996. She also wrote the novels Anne Boleyn and King's Obsession, Catherine Varagon, The True Queen, The Marriage Game, A Dangerous Inheritance, Captive Queen, The Lady Elizabeth, and Innocent Traitor. She lives in Surrey, England with her husband. I'm so grateful she has been so generous with her time and was able to tell us all about Jane Seymour. So let's jump right into it. I just finished your book this morning and I'm still drying the tears I have to say. Oh my goodness. Oh I'm uh, Oh dear. <laughs> it was quite an emotional experience actually when I was writing it, you know, uh, because I'm, I, I, 
I was living it. You have to try and get inside your subject's head. Well, you do when you read a book too, so you know what it's like. Somebody, somebody who's just reviewed it just said she couldn't put everything into the review because it just rang so many personal bells with her with what she'd been through with childbirth and everything. Yeah, it's interesting because me too, I, I had had two miscarriages before I had my daughter and then I had a horrific labor that if it wasn't for modern medicine, I wouldn't have made it either. And so reading it, I was just kind of taken back to that and was just kind of bawling my eyes out. But well, well, me too. I had a very, very difficult long labor and it was touch and go for my son. Um, but but we, we pull through. <laughs> we do. We women are, we're something else. We're strong. We are. We really are. Um, no, I, I was interested to, I'm so interested to see how you, how you change and get into the subjects head for each of these books. And I remember last year when we spoke about Anne Boleyn, you said it, you know, you didn't have quite as much sympathy for her, but that started to change as you were writing it. I think if I remember it. Yes. Yes, if you start to see things from someone's point of view, things become a little bit clearer. I mean, this is fiction, of course, so we can't know what the real Anne Boleyn thought, and we can't know exactly what her motivations were, but I think they're pretty clear in some cases. But when you look at her position and her insecurity, then her behavior becomes more, more, more understandable. Yeah, and it's, it's such a great way to, to bring these characters to life with through historical fiction, because there's only so much that the record can give you and historical fiction kind of fills in those gaps. It does. But what it doesn't always give you is is a clue to character for Anne Boleyn. There's a lot of information, but not the information we have for Catherine of Aragon. She's the easiest of the lot so far because, because for Anne Boleyn, we don't have all the letters, but for Jane Seymour, we could have two Janes. You could have the one who is the, the virtuous and willing instrument, you know, a biddable instrument of, of an ambitious family and, and, and an ardent king, or you could have the scheming adventuress who's, you know, determined to topple her predecessor and, and you know, and, and is, you know, gets, gets what she wants. Before you, came, before you started writing this book, had you had a specific view on her? Did you lean one way or another? And then I had a rather different view. I thought she, was, I, I thought she had a certain amount of ambition. And, but I also thought that she was, had the makings of a matriarch, and that, that might have been in keeping with her family. But having looked at her story again, I mean, I looked at the evidence forensically. I went through it for clues as to character. And I think that she was not, she was not confident, and that's clear, um, particularly in the early weeks of her marriage when she's very diffident about receiving the Spanish ambassador, and Henry makes apologies for her. And later when she's pregnant, when she's, when she's gone into, into seclusion, he says, you know, he, he says, Henry, Henry said he won't go too far because he's horribly afraid, you know, of being away, he's being away from her. Mm-hmm. So this isn't someone who's very confident. And, and I did see, I mean, she, she was quite a stickler for her maids of honor um, to, have, to have all the correct number of pearls on their attire. You know, she was strict about that. She, she confessed to Henry that, you know, she wanted the Lady Mary back at court, his daughter, because she, that she had no one else to make merry with who was of her, her, her status. Um, this isn't, to me, a snobbish knight's daughter. It's someone who probably feels at, at, you know, lacking beside all the great ladies of the court. Sure. And it's compensating by overstating that status. So that's how I see her. Yes, I think she would, may have been a matriarch, but I don't get that impression so much from having looked at her from this point of view. But again, it's a fictional representation, but it, it is drawn on, on a lot of research. Sure. And it, it seems like she probably, through her early life, hadn't really had that much reason to feel confident. 
No. So. No, I mean, there's this big quest, this big question. Why were her, her younger sisters married first? Why was it that Lady Dormer was so so desperate to break, to, not for her to, her son's betrothal to Jane not to go ahead? What does that make Jane feel? The only one of the explanations which I've gone for in the book is that she wanted she wanted to become a nun, which would have meant she wouldn't have they wouldn't they would they would just have passed her over for marriage, you know, and perhaps said you know wait to test your vocation given the religious spirit of the times. But um, but but. That's just that's a fictional representation based on, um, you know, trying to answer the question of why 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 no husband was found, and and also um, based on her fact that she pleaded for the monasteries to be saved. She was clearly a traditionist, traditionalist, and was distressed at the thought of them being closed. I'm thinking, did she ever at one time want want to enter a convent? So it's just a it's a supposition. It may be that there were. That there, that there were negotiations for marriages that fell through, but we don't know them. There's no record. And do you think the early scandal in her family would have affected that at all with her father? Possibly. We, we can't say for certain there was a scandal. If you read the author's note at the end, um, we got two 17th century sources for it, but the fact remains that Edward Seymour did disinherit his sons by his first wife. She did return, retire to a convent. It's, it's, and also her father disinherited both her and Edward. It's a strange situation. And then you get these two explanations coming up in the 17th century. Right. Yeah. But something strange had happened there. Well, something strange had, and one wonders whether this was a, a known secret. This was the reason for uh, Lady Dormer wanting to, not wanting to get involved with that family. <laughs> so throughout, James, I, a couple of things came up for me as I was reading, especially once she, once she, it's interesting how she handled Anne's downfall and kind of reconciling, I love to play pop psychologist, I guess. And how would Go she there, have, yeah. how would she have reconciled you know, her own rise and Anne's downfall? She would have known that at least some, some of those charges weren't true because of the dates. Um, but then you, I don't know whether she would have been able to work that out. Okay. No, I don't think she would have known. I think she would have known what, you know, what Henry, she might have put two and two together, but whether she actually saw those charges is another matter. And then you do have her witnessing Norris and Anne coming out of the tower. This is my own fictional thread, but as later becomes clear in the book, she, she, she realizes that she was wrong, but she doesn't say anything about it. Right. She suffers guilt. I mean, this is where the haunted queen comes from. She suffers guilt. Um, she does know. I mean, she's she's privy to some of it. She has she has to be. Henry would have to have told her some of it. She did know. Um, but I've just I've just it's my own reading of it. We don't know for certain. Right. Right. Yeah, and it. It's interesting. Then I I also wonder about how she would have felt about Cranmer officiating their wedding. Um, do you have any well, thoughts about yeah. that? Well, I think she would have, you know, she she would probably have, you know, had, had reservations about it. But she she was overwhelmed by it all, I think. Yeah, I'm sure it would have been. I think so. I mean, I may be wider the mark. I don't know. But everything everything I've looked on in Jane is, is that she's 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 not she's not pushy. She's she she not not like. I mean, we've got no letters from her, have we? We've no clues. This is the problem. She is she is a blank slate in some cases. Yeah. So then people can. But she may well have had issues about Cranmer. Yeah. 
you have a theory on her death, which you go into yeah. detail with. You talk about that in your author note as well. And you did, you've done research with midwives and, and people who are experts doctors. in this and doctors. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, and I just wonder if you can tell me, if you can tell me a little bit about this theory of her death that you have. Yeah, well, I was, I was looking at the evidence again for her final illness. And noticed and, and, and wrote down the chronology and added in all the information we had at each stage. And it seemed to me there were two distinct illnesses. And it didn't fit, the first one didn't come on until four days after the birth. And it didn't seem to me to fit the pattern of purple fever or purple sepsis. And I thought, oh dear, I can't go any further than that. I thought the first one, I went through all sorts of theories and looking at the very few symptoms, the few descriptions of her symptoms that we have. And fever is not mentioned once. And this was a condition that was known, so would probably be described as such. So I thought, oh, gosh, I can't take this any further, you know, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to stick my neck out and put something in the book if it's all wrong, because I thought the first illness was food poisoning. Okay. And so I, I went on Facebook. <laughs> I said, basically, is there a doctor out there? <laughs> and uh, an experienced critical care in ER nurse was, was been on one of my tours that I run. And... Uh, she said, she, she, came, she came back to me and she said, I, uh, if you send me the information, I'll have a look. Mm-hmm. And then she did. She came up with a theory, and, which actually proved to be the right, well, well the right one, in so, in so much as we, we've only got these sources to go on. Mm-hmm. And the, she said, I can show it to some doctors at the hospital if you like. And I said, I'll be very grateful. So she showed it to three doctors. And they, 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 I've got loads of emails with this debate going on between them but they they ruled out they gradually came to agree that they could that it's very unlikely that that, that, that it was purple purple sepsis mm-hmm. and then they were looking at it they all thought it was a combination of factors they thought that the first illness i was right the first illness was probably food poisoning and then and dehydration from diarrhea um, could have been a contributory factor also a blood clot lying in bed as women were supposed to do could have caused one or more blood clots formerly embolisms and if Jane had got up for example while they changed her linen or she got up to the clothes store it could have dislodged a piece of clot so it's a combination of dehydration and 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 embolism possible postpartum blood loss we don't know that there's no evidence for it but and anemia to which there are pointers so I thought all these things they thought all these things coming together could have caused pulmonary embolism, leading to cardiorespiratory failure, shock, and death. And that's on the symptoms we have. The, the description of her taking, the, the people around her suffered her to take great cold at the end, indicates the shock and cyanosis, turning blue at the extremities. And the, it was, I had an experienced midwife here who also came around to that opinion, and independently, and then the, then the critical care nurse described for me, blow by blow, the, the stages of Jane's illness. She said she has seen it countless times. So even today, she couldn't, might not have been saved, if you see what I mean. Sure. But I mean, all I can say is that this is, this is the likeliest scenario given, because Jane, Jane was her young, her heart was young. Um, and, and so it, this, this would account for the time it took for her to die. Mm-hmm. And for the fact that she was well for the first several days afterwards and there was no evidence. Yes, that's right. She was. She was sitting. I mean, she was, she was signing letters on the evening. The child was born at two in the morning. She was signing letters on the, on, you know, on, on, on the evening after the birth. Right. And she was also sitting up in bed the following Monday 
Monday, that child was born on Friday morning. On the Monday evening, at midnight, she was receiving guests after the christening. Yeah. Ceremonially, you know, she was clad in all her ermine and, you know, velvet robe and that. And uh, so, so she, she was okay then. It was on the Tuesday she started to, to fall ill. And possibly they'd given her rich food at the time of the, you know, the christening banquet or something. Sure. Yeah, and it's uh, sometimes in popular movies and culture they they talk about that it was maybe a, ce- a cesarean or um, that the it was obvious during the labor itself that there was horrible problems. But it- it's the later story, it's a later story, and it's it, 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 there's, there cannot be any truth in it. She certainly would have been sighted in a state. She would probably, the result would have been a speedy and very agonizing death. Right. She would not have been sitting up writing letters or hosting a christening gathering um, afterwards. She would not have survived 12 days. Right. Absolutely. There's no, there's, and it's, it was usually, cesarean was usually performed, that was performed then. The routine procedure was on a dead mother to get the child out. I was going to say, I think the earliest, don't quote me on the, on the date, the, the earliest time it's recorded as being performed on a living mother is 1580s, I think. There's also a date of about 1615. Right. So you also, I was interested to read your description in her, um, in her labor, you talked about uh, a mixture, a drug that she was given with the poppy seeds and a number of things that really knocked her out. And it was, and she almost slept through much of it. And I thought that was really interesting because a lot of times um, we're, we're told about before epidurals and before medicine that women just mm. embraced this earth goddess mother, you just did it and everything like that. And um, it, it was interesting to, to see that even then people were trying to medicate this and, and were trying to kind of yeah. provide comfort. And, and some of it actually seemed fairly effective in at least knocking you out. Yeah, I did some research on that. That was a that was one preparation I read about, and it would have had that effect. Yeah, we don't know she was given that, but I did a lot of a lot of work on 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 you know obstetrics in those days and what remedies and it, some of it was surprisingly modern. You know, they used birth, sometimes used birthing chairs, and it was and breathing exercises. You know, that, that and and even even giving birth in water. Right. And I, I think it's interesting also just the idea of um, having these images and the, uh, the girdle, girdles that you would um, say your prayers to. Girdle, yes. Yeah. And it was interesting, too, because I studied self-hypnosis for my labor. And so oh, many of the things. Yeah, I know. Right. It was it was. Did it work? <laughs> well, you know, interestingly, my 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 OB and everybody in the hospital was amazed at how peaceful I was and how quiet I was. And everybody kept coming in and asking what was going on um they were really blown away by it until i i had to be induced and then they they manually broke my water and it all kind of went to heck after that yeah, it went crazy from there yeah. yeah exactly um but it was interesting because so much of that um rang true in terms of this hypnosis study stuff that i was looking at and you know just focusing on other things and having these and i, and I can imagine that the the mental almost like the placebo effect kind of thing of believing that the saints were there with you and, and believing that our lady was yeah. there helping you with all of this. And the, the particular saints that looked out for childbirth and for mothers would, would have a very powerful effect on. Oh, I think it would. I think a lot of these mind, mind over matter. Yeah. A lot of it, some, you know, and I think, I think the mind can be very powerful. It can actually induce pain or it control it. Sure. Because pain is felt in the brain. 
so so I think that they would have believed in the, their herbal remedies. They would have believed in the in the magical powers of something like Our Lady's Girdle. They also wrote prayers on scrolls and wrapped wrap, long strips of paper and wrapped them around the mother's middle. Yeah. And it's interesting in that series that Helen Castor did on the medieval lives that as the um, disillusion continued and as you were told not to pray to these to these saints and like what how that yeah. would have affected women in childbirth. And it must have affected women a hell of a lot. Because I mean, because, because I mean, this, this is part of their lives. The saints, for for some people, they're always like part of their family. You know, I'll go and talk to Saint So and So in the church. You know, and have a word with them. Oh yeah, I live in Spain. It's still like that here. <laughs> oh, I know. I know it is. So I also want to touch on the your theories about her early miscarriages too, because um, that's something that. Well, they are just theories, and they've been, you know, there's no actual proof. But you have some. It, it explains a number. Yeah, of things. I mean, there, there are, there is, there is, there is a sort of turning point because Hen, we we know this affair was established by October 1535. Now Henry visited Wolf Hall in September. It's not the time. Some people say, well, that's where he fell in love, met and fell in love with Jane. Well, he didn't because she'd been in Anne's household. He'd been in Catherine's household. He would have known her, mm-hmm. perhaps not very well. But she she was a recipient of a gift of one Christmas or New Year, a little bit earlier. So he did know of her. Maybe, though, it was at Wolf Hall where, where things are going wrong with Anne. And Anne, Anne is, uh, you know, the, the marriage is not right. Henry is looking for something, a, a rather gentle antidote. We don't know. Mm-hmm. But the affair is established by, um, by October 1535. But it's not until February 1536 or March, that Jane returns a letter with, a, with you know, it's unopened, with the purse of money to Henry. But she kneels down and kisses the letter and says, perhaps he would send it again, you know, when it's at, when, at such time when she would make a good marriage. It's a bit of a hint. But in March, her brother and his wife, Cromwell, vacates his apartments at Greenwich, which are connected to the King's by a secret gallery. He vacates these so that Edward Seymour and his wife can live there and Henry can see Jane, chaperoned by her family. What's been going on in the meantime? <laughs> which made me wonder. And there were these two disparate sources which can have no connection. One is the Spanish ambassador in Rome, the imperial ambassador, and one is a, a man called John Hill in England, both suggesting, both one in Rome, they're saying that Jane's five or six months gone with child when she gets married. And this, this John Hill is saying, oh, the king's highness was made fast under her, under the, her grace, under the queen six months before. Um, certainly he wasn't made fast in, 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 in there's no question of any, any, any um, betrothal, there can't be. He's a, to all intents and purposes, a married man six months before. So made fast might well mean a sexual connection. So it made me wonder. But it also, I'm not the first person to think this. It's, it, uh, there was a, um, a Francis Hackett, a journalist who wrote a biography of Henry VIII in the 20s. Um, he posed the question that, you know, what, why the haste? Why did Henry have to get betrothed to, to, to Jane on, on the morning after Anne's execution? I mean, yes, he needs an heir, but isn't this a bit drastic? Yeah. You know, and if she was pregnant, it would have galvanized him into action by the haste of Anne's downfall. Right. Because, of course, that would put a whole new complexion on my theory of that, that it's only Cromwell who brings down Anne Boleyn. Because if Henry knows Jane's pregnant, it gives him a motive, too, and it puts him into the picture. Right. It was Cromwell who masterminded it. But there is no evidence that, that Henry actually told him to do it. In fact, the evidence suggests that and was recovering favour. Yeah. And then Cromwell went away for... Cromwell went away because he felt he was in danger. But if... I mean, we can't know this. If Jane was pregnant, if Henry knew this, 
he'd have every reason in the world to want to get rid of Anne. Right. Interesting. So, so that that's the evidence. And, and if she was pregnant, well, of course. Um, and again, it would account for this gap between the, the marriage and the conception of Edward. Of course, that's not if you're trying to get pregnant. That's not really much, you know, waiting six, seven months. Right. You know, but there's also this account of of Mary being brought back to court when Jane is pregnant in October. Mm-hmm. And, and and Henry's saying Edward, Edward, and, and historians discount this passage. Because they say it can't be right, you know, even if the, the, the passage puts it in December, this, this meeting, but actually she came back to court in October to the same place, Windsor. So clearly it's just been, the date is incorrect. And it's written a few years later. But so that, 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 that's not too significant, given the fact that we accept other passages in this particular um, account. Um, but the fact Henry pats Jane on the stomach and says, Edward, Edward, um, people think, well, she couldn't possibly have been pregnant with Edward even in December, so let's just discount that. But what if it's October and she is pregnant? Mm-hmm. In that case, it's, it's pretty good evidence for a pregnancy that didn't, you know, that, didn't, that, that, that was lost. Right. And that, that would fit with how fertile her, her family was and her mother was. And you would think that, and she was young enough that if they were trying yeah. to get pregnant, it would have happened. That's true. Yeah. And her mother, her mother also got, um, uh, also, also lost children too, to begin with. Sure. Hmm. Interesting to think about. I, uh, I want to jump into some questions that people on my Facebook page had for you. Okay. Um, Nikki had asked about the miscarriages. We talked about that. Roxanne asks, when compared to her two strong-minded predecessors with powerful personalities, Jane's character seems elusive, almost obscure. I'm curious, was it different? And in what way to bring Jane, the woman, not the third one who gave birth to the long-awaited heir, to life on the pages of this book? Is she as relatable a character as Catherine or Anne for the author? This is what I was saying earlier. I could have gone two ways with her. And this is what, what I did is sort of looking at forensically into her, into clues for her character. And, and that's pretty much all I can say. But, you know, I've, I've gone with what I think is, is, the, is the right, you know, is, is probably a credible reading of it. I hope. Yeah. How it comes across to other people is a different matter. They may have a different view of Jamie and they may disagree with it. But I have tried to, you know, keep true to the sources mm-hmm. and try to reconcile all the sources about her into what I hope is a cohesive portrayal. Sure. Sure. The next one, she says, I'm only about halfway through the new book. We're always told by historians how Jane was quiet and meek, yet Alison brings her to life and shows her that she was no dummy and certainly needed to have spirit and character in order to have the guts to be Henry's wife and to try to guide him back towards the old religion and promote Mary back into the line of succession. Does this mean then that although Jane was not as feisty and cunning as Anne, she was just as astute and had strong resolve? You kind of addressed that. I think. I think that's a good question. I think she did have strong, strong principles. Sometimes, her, and she it must have taken a lot of. I think she had courage, moral courage. It must have taken a lot to speak out, to to endorse the demands of the rebels at the time of the Pilgrimage of Grace, uh, when they're actually committed in Henry's view, they're traitors. Sure. So that must have taken some guts. It really does, and I keep returning to that in mind when I do a talk on her, because it it is a real clue as to her character that there is strength there. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say feisty, I certainly wouldn't, because I talked about the lack of confidence earlier. But here's someone who who cares about things, who has principles, who stands up for what she believes in. She, she didn't stand up to him, but she pleaded for Mary. She got Mary back to court. And that shows that she, you know, she had tenacity. Mm-hmm. 
So I think there is a strength in her. It's a quiet strength. Um, let's see. Candy asks, in her portraits, she's not particularly attractive. Wondering what Alison thinks about portraits. As, uh, she says, in her portraits, she's not too attractive. Wonder- yeah, in her portraits, yeah, she's not very, yeah. Yeah. Wondering what Alison thinks about portraits as compared to her actual appearance. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, I think I think I would say that, 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 that there are several portraits that we know are Jane. They're attested to be Jane. Um, and she looks very different in all of them. <laughs> but Holbein, of course, is the Holbein is the is a master portrait paint was a master portrait painter. His I mean his is a very unattractive rendering, but it probably is pretty accurate. Although it's very different from one or two of the other ones. And I just I mean, in the moment I'm beginning to uh, thinking that I might have uncovered a por- another portrait type of Jane, but I can't say very much about it at the moment. Work on the jewellery is going on, mm-hmm. in which she does look a lot more attractive. Um, so it's very hard to know what she actually looked like. She was pale, definitely, and that might be the clue to the anemia. Um, she seems to have had a very angular face. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the prim lips, the tight prim button lips that get me on the Holbein portrait. And I, and also the, the eyes, her eyes are so wary. Mm-hmm. Some might say they're sly. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't know. That's, you cannot, you should never judge people on their looks. And beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And for Henry, what people were saying, she was a most gracious lady. They said, you know, she was the complete opposite to Anne in every way. And, he, you know, they, they talk about her gentleness. Mm-hmm. And Anne was never considered particularly beautiful no, either. So it seems no. as if to Henry, the personality was a lot more important, I suppose. Well, I mean, it's just, it's, it's what it's beauty, as I say, is it's a very personal thing, what, attract, what appeals to you. And, 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 and obviously had charisma. She had sex appeal for Henry, and he was in he was enthralled to her. Yeah. Sasha asks, does Alison believe Jane actually wanted to marry Henry? Seeing the fate of the two women that came before her, who were better educated and certainly more cunning, it can't have been easy. Well, you kind of address that in your well, you do talk about that a lot in your book and the responsibility to her family and things like that too. Would you like to elaborate on that at all? Yes. Yes, I mean, I think I th- I've, I've played it along the way that, I mean, we, we have no evidence to the contrary. In fact, we've got some evidence that it's true that she did come to love Henry and rely on him. She didn't want to be apart from him. She obviously saw him as her protector. But there must have been something between them. And he, he, this is a good marriage. He's very caring of her. The only time he's, he's a bit brutal to her is when she speaks out against him. And she's lucky that's all he did. Yeah. You know, because he could, he could really, you know, he clearly, you know, he, he was really riled by it. And he said the last queen, he told her to shut up, you know, and it reminded her the last queen had died because she'd meddled in politics, too much in politics. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, a, it's a really nasty riposte. But um, this is typical of Henry, who's, who's all bluster. Yeah. Um, but this is generally a good marriage. And I think, I think even if maybe she wasn't, she must have been overwhelmed in the beginning. I would have thought that he'd gone for her. Mm-hmm. I mean, if she's going to make a play for him, she'd surely have done it much earlier. (laughs) Uh, And then a final question here is, were her brothers comparable, do you think, to the Boleyns in their desire to climb high? Yes, I think they were. I think they were were incredibly um, uh, uh, ambitious. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, that's all of the main questions here. Um, you've been so generous with your time. It's uh, it's always a a pleasure. pleasure, a joy to speak with you. 
Thank you to Allison Weir for taking the time to talk to us about Jane Seymour. Remember to go out and get her book if you want to read the full story. It's a really great book. I highly recommend it. So I've got links on my website at englandcast.com. Remember to go shopping at tutorfair.com for all your Tudor beach gear. Go to englandcast.com for the complete show notes and book recommendations. And I will be back in your feed next week with an episode on how the tutors would have celebrated the summer solstice. So stay tuned for that. All right, I will talk with you again soon. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great week. Bye bye. Blow northern wind, ascend for baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoto bord in Baurabrik, at solis emlis on trees. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.